Revelation 5, beginning in verse 1, says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him, who sat on the throne. And Father, we humbly pause and ask as we continue to worship now, give us the supernatural grace of your Holy Spirit to be receptive to what you, through the word of God, are saying to us by the Spirit of God this day as we continue to worship you now. And we ask this expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, I have found in my Christian life again and again, and I've been walking with Jesus now since 1992, both in my life as well as getting to have observation in lots of other believers' lives, that God has a marvelous way to take a horrible experience, and if you give him time to work, to transition it into a helpful experience and in this passage, it happens somewhat quickly, but we see that very thing happening in our text this morning. John goes from a moment where he is overwhelmed with grief and sobbing in great sorrow, and God then transitions that great sorrow and it what feels like a horrible experience to one of the most helpful experiences in his life where he sees incredible things about the Lord and has an encounter with the Lord in a very powerful way. Remember, Revelation chapters 4 and 5, this kind of next unit in our study in the book of Revelation, is giving to us a record of a spiritual vision that John received as he was caught up into the eternal dimension, it seems, and was in the Spirit, and he's shown this vision and revelation of the throne of God there in heaven. And we saw in our study last time in chapter 4, the first thing he sees is this glorious one sitting upon the throne. And as he sees this glorious one sitting upon the throne, he then described in chapter 4 some of the incredible and beautiful sights of the throne of God in heaven and the sounds that he was hearing of the atmosphere there, as well as the ceaseless worship. It says they do not rest. It's ceaseless, ongoing the ceaseless worship by the angels as well as all of the redeemed people there in heaven at the throne of God. And the last thing we are told at the end of chapter 4, they were proclaiming 
in worship, and we'll see more of what they're proclaiming in our next study in Revelation. But the last thing we saw, chapter 4, verse 11, if you glance back at it, they're proclaiming in a ceaseless way, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will, literally the language is for your pleasure or for your purpose, they exist and were created. So they're acknowledging they're around the throne of God, not only that God is worthy to receive glory and worship and honor and praise, and that's always important to remember, as we mentioned, because the reason that we worship is because we are giving God something worthy to receive. He's worthy to receive that. Meaning that when I don't worship him, in a sense, I'm robbing God and withholding from God something that he receives that he's worthy and deserving of by giving him my worship. And the thing that they were proclaiming, particularly here, that God is worthy to receive worship for is they're acknowledging him particularly in that statement there as being the creator of all things, the heavens and the earth, the angelic realm and all people, and particularly that God created such things, it says that everything exists, including you and I as human beings, for serving God's purposes. That's why our existence is come to pass is for God's pleasure. We exist to give pleasure to God, to serve his purposes. And with that focus in mind now, as God being the creator of the whole universe and all that exists within the universe, human beings being the cherished part of his creation. Verse 1 continues where John then says, And I saw in the right hand, that's the, 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 the hand of power, the dominant hand, the right hand of a king, I saw in the right hand of him who sat upon the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So John's attention now, notice, is powerfully drawn to this very special scroll that it says that God the Father is holding there in his hand as he's sitting upon the throne as the creator of all things and the ruler of all. And the scroll was described for us there in verse 1 in a manner to purposely show how special this scroll is. The language is descriptive to try and indicate how important this particular scroll is that John is now fixated upon in the hand of God the Father upon the throne. We're told there in verse 1 of this scroll, first of all, that it is written, notice, both on the inside of the scroll as well as on the back or the outside of the scroll. That is on both sides of the parchment. And scrolls would be read horizontally, not vertically. They'd be read horizontally. And this is a very unique description. This is very unusual. Typically, scrolls were only written upon one side, the inside. That was what the norm was. So this is more of the exception. It's written on both sides of the parchment, purposely probably because there was a lot of information contained upon this scroll. It's a document or record with a large amount of content in what it instructs as well as the things that it reveals. Secondly, we're told in verse 1 of this scroll written on both sides that it was sealed, and not just sealed, but it was sealed with, the Bible tells us, seven seals. 
Now, again, when they would utilize scrolls, particularly if they were important records, they would wax seal them. And the purpose of the wax seal was to protect the contents within the scroll that were written down from being tampered with or being altered or the message being changed. So notice this scroll doesn't have just one seal. The Holy Spirit tells us it has seven seals because what's in this scroll is so important. It actually has seven different seals. Seven, remember, is the number of completeness. So it is thoroughly and completely sealed because of how important the contents within it are. And it appears the seven seals, as it's described, were affixed in such a way that each successive seal had to be broken in order to then unroll the scroll a little further and read more content. So you would break the first seal, you would be able to unroll it a little bit, and there was content and information to be read. And then you had to break open the second seal, and as you broke open the second seal, you could unroll it a little bit further, and there was a secondary message or more information, broken the third seal, so on and so forth. And it had to be opened and read progressively, sort of one phase at a time. Now, keep that in mind, because that will make sense as we come to chapter 6, as we see the Lord Jesus starting to open one seal at a time. And as Jesus opens each seal of these seven seals, it brings to pass another successive event on the earth regarding the instructions prescribed within by God the Father regarding the tribulation period, as we'll see. So, what is this scroll that we find here in the hand of God that no human, as we read, is worthy to open? Only the Lord Jesus, who's prevailed, comes forward and is qualified to open it. Well, let's, as we have been before, use Scripture to help best interpret Scripture. In Ezekiel chapter 2, there Ezekiel receives a vision. And in that vision, he sees a scroll with writing both on the inside and the outside. And that scroll, as it's opened, reveals great mourning and sorrow regarding the consequences coming upon the earth because of man's sin and rebellion. As well, we find in Jeremiah 36, another scroll. And there, the writing in that scroll describes the righteous judgment of God against the sin of the nation of Israel. Now, I think perhaps the most helpful, particularly in interpreting this, which we see here from the Old Testament, interpreting this in the book of Revelation, probably the most helpful, I would say, is Jeremiah chapter 32. And in Jeremiah chapter 32, we see an example of a scroll that was used as a title deed for property ownership, and particularly for property ownership as it was being purchased through a redemptive process by a close relative or what we call a kinsman redeemer paying a purchase price to reclaim back a property that had been lost so that it could be restored back to its original family ownership. Jeremiah tells us this in chapter 32, the word of the Lord came to me saying, behold, Hanamel, your cousin will come to you saying, buy my field. For as a near relative, the right of redemption is yours to buy. And Hanamiel came to me according to the word of the Lord and said, Please buy my field, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of redemption is yours. And the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. 
Jeremiah said, then I knew this was the word of the Lord. Interesting little insight there. How did he know it was the word of the Lord? God spoke something to him, and then God orchestrated a circumstance that aligned with what was spoken to him. And he said, now I know that that was God that spoke to me. Aren't you so glad that a prophet of the Lord said, I heard something from God, but I don't want to act super spiritual like I know it's definitely God. And he waited until the circumstantial situation arose, the open door, and, he, and then when the circumstance arose and his cousin said, hey, cuz, you want to buy my property? Jeremiah was like, okay, now I know God spoke to me. But he waited for the circumstance to align with it. And he said, now I know definitely God did speak to me. It wasn't my own mind or whatever. He says, I knew that was in the word of the Lord. So he says he bought the field from his cousin, weighed out the money to him, signed the deed, sealed the real estate transaction. Notice, even in the Bible, you see contracts. Very wise. Don't be naive and foolish as a Christian. Christian, even write it down. If you don't, you might have yourself a problem later on. So I took the purchase deed both which was according to the requirements, sealed them according to law and custom, gave the purchase deed then to Baruch, another man who was a witness in the situation, in the presence of my cousin and the presence of all the witnesses who signed the purchase deed. And I charged him saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take this purchase deed, which is sealed, put it in an earthen vessel to preserve it. For thus says the Lord, houses and fields shall be purchased again in this land. Now, let me briefly give you the context of what's going on. The children of Israel are about to go into captivity for 70 years. Now, that means this. As they're getting pushed out of their land and sent to the land of Babylon, guess what? Real estate plummeted. Now, all of a sudden, that land is worthless. Who wants to buy real estate when basically the Babylonian empire is going to come conquer the land and control it for the next 70 years. This seemed ridiculous, this real estate transaction. It seemed utterly foolish. The land was worthless. The enemy was conquering and ruling. Things were in ruin, but Jeremiah did this as an act of faith, believing that God's promise was true, that 70 years later, he would restore the people back to the land. So as the prophet of the Lord, as an act of faith, he purchases this worthless land. He redeems it back from his cousin because he's a blood relative. And that's the only reason he could do this. Because he was a close blood relative, he redeemed it. He purchased the land. He reclaimed it for the family of origin it belonged to. He sealed the deed. He wrote it down on a scroll, put a seal upon it. And here we see a scroll in Jeremiah being used as a title deed for land that was redemptively purchased by a close blood relative, the qualified one, to reclaim the property. Now, keep that in mind. One more thing. You notice at the end of our text this morning in verses 9 and 10, that as they break out in chapter 5 of Revelation into a song, here's what they sing, and this is in response to this whole event of the scroll. They sing, you are worthy, O Lord, to take this scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and have, look what he says, redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So there, notice, the song of worship connected to this scroll and this whole scene we see happening here in the first part of the chapter is about the work of Jesus in redemption 
as a close human blood relative, and as Jesus accomplishes as a kinsman redeemer redemption, the purchase price through his shed blood to perform the right of redemption, which results in, notice, results in verse 10, you and I as human beings reigning with him on the earth, which he now has reclaimed as the rightful owner back for mankind. I say all of that to tell you, I believe that through those scriptural insights, that the best idea of what this scroll is here in the hand of God the Father is the title deed to the earth. Now, if you can bear with me in patience, and don't panic, I'm not going to stay in verse 1 for a period of time and then make you be fearful. Oh my goodness, he spent that much time on verse 1. We're going to be here till 3 p.m. We might as well baptize everybody today. That's not what I'm going to do. But I am going to drill down a little bit on verse 1. I'll move through the other verses a little bit more quickly because I want you to understand what this means, and it connects to what's in the passage here, that if this is indeed the title deed to the earth, why this all is so important and makes such sense. Technically, the earth is permanently God's possession as the result of the right of him being the creator of the heavens and the earth. So technically, from a technical perspective, it is always God's permanent possession. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell within it, for he laid the earth's foundation on the seas and built it on the ocean depth. So as the creator of the heavens, of the earth, God is the rightful owner and possessor of the earth, and when you're the owner of something, you can do with that property whatever you want with that property because it's your property, which means you have the right to entrust the property to someone else, to give it as an inheritance to someone else. And the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1 that after God created the earth, he did what? He entrusted the earth to Adam or to mankind to rule over the earth. It tells us in Genesis chapter 1 that God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion, which means rulership, over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, and over all of the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over, again, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and everything that moves on the earth. So the Bible is very clear that mankind from creation, before sin or anything happened, was given by God, the creator, dominion over the earth. That humanity was given to rule over and subdue the earth and control things upon the earth. Now, in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, we know that mankind falls into sin. Sin enters the world, and the curse comes upon humanity and comes upon the earth. Man disobeys God, and instead, what does he do? He yields to the authoritative voice of who? Satan. And he chooses, instead of obeying God as his master and giving obedience to God, man makes the horrible decision of obeying the voice of Satan's directive. And in that event, sin enters into humanity and enter into the earth. 
and the world and all within it, including mankind, come under a cursed condition and numerous things transpire. For example, death enters into the world. And that is why now our bodies from the moment of birth basically grow and progress a little, and then they just deteriorate the whole rest of our lives. And through sickness or illness or gradual decay, the human body progresses towards physical death. Man also, in the fall of humanity, dies spiritually. And so now every human being that is born, though Adam began with perfect relationship with God, we are now born spiritually dead. Our inward spirit, the part of us that is eternal and lasting, the true part of us, initially is born disconnected from God because Adam lost that in the Garden of Eden when sin entered the world, death came physically and spiritually through his sin, and so man begins life spiritually dead without relationship with God. Man inherited a sin nature. That's why when you're born, you're not naturally inclined to do what's right, but if you've raised children or are raising children, they're magnetically inclined to do what is wrong. You have to teach them how to do what's right. Children are born sinful by nature. As soon as they start growing up and behaving a little bit, you become convinced they're sinful by nature because they prove it out by the way that they act. And so we are all born with sin ruling over our life. Sin becomes, in a sense, what enslaves us. We become enslaved to Satan because we obey his will. And the physical earth as well in the curse was damaged and destroyed as well. And glorious as it is, it's now in a fallen curse condition. Look, all of this is important to connect to what we're looking at because man, from that early account when that event happened, when mankind, Adam as our representative, chose to not submit to God as master and obey his directive, but made the horrible decision to obey the directive of Satan, man forfeited his right to have dominion over the earth. In a sense, what happened in that event is Adam, as a representative of mankind, judicially surrendered his right as ruler and the one to have dominion over the earth over to Satan. Because he chose, in a sense, to obey the rulership and the directive of Satan, and in so doing, judicially lost that position of having dominion and rulership originally given to him by God. Mankind forfeited what God gave, surrendered the title deed of the earth over to Satan himself, and as a result, the devil now becomes the ruler exercising dominion over the earth's physical realm. Jesus himself, who was God living in flesh in John 12, 31, John 14, 30, and John 16, 11, called Satan, Jesus did, the ruler of this world. It tells us that Jesus said, now is the time for the ruler of this world to be judged, and the ruler of this world will be cast out. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul calls the devil the god of this present age. In Ephesians chapter 2 and 1 John chapter 5, the Bible tells us through both of those writers that the Holy Spirit says that the wicked one, the devil, is now the one where the whole world lies under the sway, the control, the directives of the wicked one. And probably most convincingly in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus, the Son of God, 
was being tempted by the devil, you remember one of the temptations came about in this way. It says the devil taking Jesus up on a high mountain, listen, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give to you and their glory for this has been delivered to me and I can give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours, to which Jesus responded, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Notice, Jesus overcame the temptation, but please notice, Jesus did not dispute the claim of the devil when the devil said, You see all the kingdoms of the world and all of this authority? It's been given to me, and I can give it to whoever I want. And if you'll forfeit and abandon the cross and worship me like your first created being did, since you're now a human being, I'll give it to you. I'll give it back to you right now, to which Jesus, knowing how he would, as a kinsman redeemer, reclaim it back anyway, which is what we're going to talk about, Jesus said, no way, no way. I'm not taking a shortcut spiritually. I don't need to take a short. But Jesus did not dispute that Satan had rulership over the world. Now, thankfully, our Lord came to earth to live as a man in a body of flesh to operate as our kinsman redeemer, as our blood relative, in order to be able to redeem all of the inhabitants and everything on the earth through a just redemptive process back so that it could be restored to which God originally intended. And again, to redeem is a term that means to pay a price to purchase something back to restore it as it was. And through Jesus' life as our blood relative in his humanity, he paid the purchase price through his sinless blood to justly redeem back everything that was lost by mankind in the Garden of Eden. That's why Hebrews 2 says, since the people have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, too, shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free all who their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Again, Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, 1 Peter 1 tell us that we were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as of a spotless sinless lamb in his offering. Hebrews 9.12 says, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, Jesus entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And Romans 3 assures us that now you and I, through faith in Christ and his finished work, can be justified and freely by his grace through the redemption that comes through him we receive back what God intended for us and we can become right with God. Now, Romans chapter 8 clearly tells us as well that our physical body also will be the last part of the redemption process. And that's why now in your physical body, if you are a Christian, you have a redeemed spirit and you groan in your falling apart, failing human body because the last part of your redemption process is when you get your body redeemed and you get a glorified body. Romans 8 also tells us that creation itself, the physical earth that God created, is yearning to be liberated 
from its cursed condition when the final redemption happens. So there is coming a time when Jesus will return to this earth and will, in a sense, lay claim to everything that he redeemed and rightfully restored back, and he will take full possession of what he purchased through his redemptive work, but yet that time is still yet coming. That is what helps us understand what's meant by Hebrews 2, verse 8, where it declares this. Please listen. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, there is nothing left outside of his control, but at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. In other words, God's word teaches Jesus has not yet come to take rightful ownership and claim back to himself that which he now rightfully has redeemed for himself. That is why, ladies and gentlemen, right now, much of this world system is ravaged and ruined by the devil's destructive spiritual rule as he has not yet, in a sense, been dethroned and Jesus has not fully reclaimed back, which he will. But right now, what we see is the world not yet living in subjection to him. And I say that before we move on to please hear this, the devil is to blame for so much of the pain that you see happening upon the earth, for so much of the problems and the chaos and the catastrophes happening upon this earth in this world system. Why? Because as of right now, Jesus hasn't come back and fully reclaimed and restored and set up his reign and rulership over the earth. It's still functioning under the realm of the rulership and the dominance of Satan, particularly everyone who's living outside of a relationship with God. And why is that important? Because so many times when horrible things happen on the earth, even as Christians, God, how could you do that? God, why would you let this catastrophe or this storm or this tragedy when the reality is sometimes, why are we blaming God when God's saying, this was never part of my heart originally. Sin entering humanity caused this. Humanity forfeiting the rulership of Satan over them and giving up my rulership and letting Satan take control of the world. That's why the world's in chaos. That's why there's sickness and pain and struggle and disease and catastrophe and horrible, wicked things that happen. That's why the world at times, and even perhaps creation at times, interesting, even insurance agents, you have to sign this little thing. If there's an act of God and your house is destroyed, I, I, I'm not trying to say God's not sovereign. I'm not smart enough to figure out how all that works out. But the reality is, is, is it always an act of God when some horrible storm or earthly catastrophe happens on this planet? Is that always God doing that? Or is that Satan who, in a sense, is influencing the corrupted, cursed universe, causing certain things, and God's the one with a broken heart saying, man, I hope I can use this to save souls and to reach people in brokenness and send Christians and ministries like Samaritan's Purse to come in and say, listen, one day this earth's all going to get rolled up like a scroll and thrown away. It's not about this stuff. It's about the eternal things. It's about worshiping at God's throne forever. And so here we see this title deed to the earth in the hand of the heavenly father. 
And it's at that point, verse 2, as John's fixated upon this, he says, I saw a strong angel come and proclaim with a loud voice there in heaven, who is worthy to open this scroll and to loose its seals? Notice the question. Who is worthy to break these seals of this heavenly scroll and to open it? It's almost as if this angel in a loud voice in heaven's courtroom says, okay, you can't open this very official document here in the eternal realm of the judicial process of heaven unless you are deserving to open this. We need someone qualified, someone who has justifiable right and proper authority. And he asks there in heaven very loudly, who, what person is qualified to handle this? What person who is deserving and has rightful authority to which verse three it says, no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth or under the earth, again, the picture is in the whole universe, the idea is, was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So the answer comes in all of heaven. It becomes totally evident to everyone there in this event and scene going on. It becomes completely obvious that there is no person, no human being, no created angelic being in all the universe that exists anywhere who is someone who is capable to handle this necessary process. No person, no angel is qualified, nor is there anyone able to break the seals and to open this scroll, which is the title deed to the earth, involving the redemptive process. After diligent search, no candidate is found. To which at that point, verse 4, John now responding to this awareness, which was a, as you're going to see, a, a horrible thing in the experience in this moment. John says, so I wept much. The language literally implies I, I sobbed convulsively. Here's a, here's a grown man, probably one of those powerful things. If you've ever seen a strong grown man begin to just break down and weep convulsively because of some overwhelming thing. And John now, it says, starts to just weep. He says, why? Because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. So he now is overwhelmed with grief. Notice why he's overwhelmed with grief, particularly notice these five words. If you're an underliner, you should underline these five words. Here's what was making him convulsively weep. He says, because no one was found worthy. Let me repeat that. No one was found worthy. No one. The Holy Spirit is certainly driving home a very clear truth here. There is not a single person that's ever existed on the earth or that will ever exist on the earth through all of human history who in any way is even close to being found worthy before holy and righteous almighty God. All people, every person is unworthy before God. There is none worthy, no, not one. All human beings are sinful, depraved, disqualified. Romans chapter 3 tells us very clearly there's none righteous, no, not one, and there's no difference among any human being. One thing that there's no difference between us at all, we all sin and fall short of the standard of the glory of God. The only thing that we all share in common is the F word, 
failure. That's it. Lots of other distinctions between us, but the one thing that universally links all of us as human beings, none of us are perfect. We all fail. Small ways, big ways. You break a law one time, you're a lawbreaker. Everybody has broken God's law, thought, word, deed. We're all guilty before God. None of us is worthy to go to heaven. None of us can become worthy enough to gain access into heaven. The Bible is very clear. God says all of humanity has failed. They deserve the judgment of hell forever. There is none worthy, not a single person in all of creation that's ever existed. Now, that is such an important spiritual truth for our soul's condition to understand and to humbly accept personally as an individual. Because listen to me this morning, until you realize, until I had to realize, until a person realizes they are utterly unworthy before holy, righteous God and the throne of heaven, you will not have the humility nor will you have the necessary desperation to want God to save your soul. If any inkling within you still thinks, well, I mean, I'm, I, mean I, I did this. I mean I, I mean, I contributed 20 bucks years ago when they were doing the stained glass windows. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a lot better than this guy or than that person, or I mean, I kind of grew up as a religious, as long as there's any inkling within us that makes us think, whether we were raised in a Christian home or something good about, that some way we are worthy before God, we are okay, we'll make it in, we'll tip the scale, whatever, you will never come to the humble, broken place as an unworthy soul in desperation where you long to be spared from your wretched condition, when you long to be saved from your unworthy, sinful, guilty condition. Look, this is the first and most fundamental part of the gospel message. The first part of that good news is not just what Jesus did and what he made available and what he did on our behalf lovingly and what he offers, forgiveness and relationship with God and peace in your soul and the assurance you want. The first part of the good news is, is me becoming convinced that I am an utter desperate failure and that I am guilty before a holy God. And recognizing that is good news because I've come into one of those important realizations in my life. I'm not good enough. I'm not righteous enough. I can't fix myself. I can't do a self-help process. But that I need to look for a savior and that's what leads us to salvation. That's what leads us to salvation. Understanding that none of us is worthy, it also helps us properly understand what it means to be saved, folks, by the grace of God. Because then you understand. You don't do anything to contribute to your salvation other than freely receive the grace of God. We're saved by grace through faith, not of works. And it is futile to think that we can earn a right standing with God. And honestly, listen, it's dishonoring and somewhat horribly discouraging to think in any way you need to become worthy or, or to keep trying to be worthy. Well, I want to do this or I want to do that, but I just, I'm, I just don't feel worthy. Right? You're never supposed to feel worthy. You're supposed to feel unworthy your whole life long and to recognize I'm not worthy, but there is one who is worthy, 
There's one who's worthy to worship because he has given me forgiveness and a right standing. Only Jesus makes us acceptable. And this increases our spiritual gratitude as well. It gives us a desire to worship. When you know you're unworthy in what Jesus has done for you, how can you not want to worship the Lord? As well as what it also does for us is it helps us be way more merciful with the failures and the struggling conditions of other people around us. See, if you think in the slightest way that you're worthy, you're always going to find a reason to look down upon another person. But when you know your own condition, it allows us to be much more merciful as we deal with the struggles and the failures of others. And as John realized no one in the universe was found worthy, it says he wept convulsively over this. Now, that's interesting. Again, why was he sobbing convulsively, grieving with depth from his soul over this realization? Here is why. Because what John was realizing in that moment, if indeed this was the title deed to the earth, and no one was found to be worthy to open it and to execute the redemptive process and claim what God restored back and take it back from the devil's rule, John was overcome with uncontrollable grief of this initial thought that the earth, in its fallen condition under Satan's ruinous rule, might be like that forever. And as John contemplated this reality, oh my goodness, you mean that the earth and everything going on in the earth is going to perpetually for all of eternity have to stay under the satanic, destructive, ruinous rule of the devil and all the pain and the problems, and there's never coming a day of deliverance? No one can reclaim back what was lost in the Garden of Eden and restore things back to God's full and complete control, and the world and people will never be liberated and God will never set us free. And when John contemplated that, it overwhelmed him. It horrified him, the thought that, oh my goodness, Satan can ruin things forever. And as John is overwhelmed with this, it's at that moment, verse 1, it says, one of the elders, one of the redeemed human souls, said to him now, now it's a human, not, notice not an angel, a human, a redeemed human says to him, do not weep. He consoles him. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and its seven seals. So one of the human representatives in heaven that's been redeemed Interesting, now takes initiative and says to John, consoling him, listen, it's okay. I know that thought was overwhelming at first, but it is okay. He says, behold, that is, consider, look at this reality. There is one who has prevailed and who is therefore worthy to open that scroll in the Father's hand. He says, it is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has authorization. He has the right. He is qualified to do this. Interesting. As he refers to Jesus here, he calls him, notice, the lion of the tribe of Judah. In the Old Testament, God promised that he would send a Messiah, that a savior and deliverer was coming, and that that deliverer to set the people free would be from the tribe of Judah, which remember, Genesis tells us, was the tribe pictured as a lion in nature. Now, when we think about a lion, it's the picture of what? The king of the jungle, strong fearless, mighty, and powerful. The lion conquers and prevails over all things and even those who resist. 
because he's the mighty lion. It's a picture of one who conquers like a king with great power and rules with authority. And the Bible calls our Lord Jesus a lion, a mighty king, a strong conquering king with great power and total authority. And Jesus did, and Jesus can, and Jesus does, and Jesus will, I assure you, prevail over all. He'll conquer everything. He has conquered and he will conquer and always overcome. What a wonderful picture to see our Lord there in his mighty power as a lion. Most people don't resist a lion as an animal. I don't think it's wise to resist the lion of the tribe of Judah, the son of God from heaven. Jesus, the mighty lion. He also calls him the root of David. That's a reference to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Because, again, a root is a source, and Messiah, 2 Samuel 7, said, would come through David's family bloodline. And so Jesus here, as coming in his earthly life, this refers to his humanity coming through David's line, picturing Jesus in his humility, in his servanthood, in his first coming. And how did Jesus prevail as the lion of the tribe of Judah? He became a man and in his humanity, in a humble entry into this world through meek and sacrificial living, his sinless life and his worthy sacrifice as he laid down his life, that is how he prevailed bearing our punishment as a human being, living the sinless life we can't, and then as a human being, as our kinsman redeemer, taking the pain and punishment we deserve. That is how Jesus prevailed in his humanity, dying on the cross for our sins and triumphantly raising back to life. Colossians 2 says it this way. It says, Jesus canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away, nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities and shamed them publicly by his triumphant victory over them on the cross. See, the king of heaven came into this world as the king of the kingdom of light. He engaged in battle with the kingdom of darkness. And the Bible very clearly says he did that to liberate us as prisoners spiritually of the devil. And he prevailed in the battle and overcame. The eternal lion prevailed in the necessary way on our behalf. You know, the word prevail just by a definition is beautiful. It means this, prevail to prove more powerful than an opposing force in order to be victorious. Jesus prevailed. Jesus proved more powerful than the opposing force of darkness to be victorious for us spiritually. He prevailed over Satan and over sin's power, and he broke that rule as the lion and conquered back and reclaimed to God what was lost and here's the wonderful things, folks. Through Jesus and his spirit within us, we can now prevail. We can prevail over the power of sin. We can prevail over the power of Satan. Through the presence of Jesus' spirit within us, the lion of the tribe of Judah and his rulership over our life. So John's heart is now consoled. Despite the bad news, John's told, hey, don't weep anymore. There's one who prevailed. It is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Look, behold. So he's told to look for the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
And look at verse six. He's turning now to see this mighty lion that's prevailed. He says, and I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, the angels, and in the midst of the elders, the redeemed saints, stood, where's the lion? Stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So he turns looking for a mighty lion and he sees what? A lamb. That describes how Jesus, though a mighty king, how Jesus prevailed. How did Jesus prevail? The way that Jesus prevailed was through humble, loving sacrifice as the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. This is how Jesus prevailed. He sees a lamb as if it had been slain. He sees the marks of slaughter from sacrifice upon our Lord Jesus there at the throne of God, bearing his wounds and bearing his scars. And notice where Jesus is. He's in the midst, it says. Two times it says, in the midst, that is right in the middle of the angels and the church. The angels and the saints, they're worshiping him. Notice, Jesus is the central thing in heaven. All the focus is on our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the center of attention. He's in the middle of everything, and all attention is upon the Lord. And how is it upon him? As the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. You know, that title, the Lamb, becomes the most predominant title used of our Lord Jesus Christ throughout the book of Revelation. That's the title the Holy Spirit uses more than any other title to Jesus throughout this whole book. And in a main way, I believe the Holy Spirit's wanting to emphasize this as primarily important, that the main thing about Jesus that will be admired about him in heaven and that will cause us to adore him in heaven forever and ever and ever and ever, though there are many things, but the main thing is when we realize that mighty lion sacrificially laid down his life like a lamb and was willing to suffer and to bleed out his life and be abused and beaten as the innocent one so that me as a guilty sinner could be pardoned of all my sins and my failures and the wrong things I've done. And that becomes the primary motivator for worship. And let me say as an encouragement this morning, folks, that should be always our primary motivator for worship. No matter what's going on in your life, your primary motivator for worship and my primary driver for worship is realizing he's the lamb who was slain for me. And that always gives me a reason to worship him, to know I'm forgiven and I can go to heaven. As he describes representatively the person of Jesus, John says he also saw these seven horns and seven eyes symbolically representing aspects of Jesus' person. Again, seven is the term or number of completion or fullness. Horns in the Bible always represent power and authority. And eyes are always representative of being able to see things. The idea is to have awareness. And what this is describing, seven horns, seven eyes, is that Jesus has complete authority and power over all. He even did in his redemption. Remember John 10, Jesus said, no one took my life from me. I, in my own power and authority, laid down my life, and I have power to take it back again as well. And Jesus also, with the seven eyes, had full awareness, the idea is, of the entirety of the plan of God. And he operated in that way with full awareness. And notice he says the seven horns and seven eyes are also reflective. Verse 6, he says, of the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The idea is the sevenfold spirit. Now, again, 
we know from Scripture there's only one Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we've already seen this, and so we won't spend much time on it before in Revelation. It is a symbol, a picture of the sevenfold or the complete or total or thorough ministry of the Spirit of God as he operates in many different ways. 1 Corinthians 12 says the Spirit manifests himself in many different ways in his fullness, reaching souls and working in different ways through the church. Well, verse 7 concludes telling us that Jesus then came, took this scroll out of the right hand of him who sat upon the throne, displaying he is the rightful, authorized person. He now takes the scroll from the Father, and one day Jesus, as rightful ruler, after the removal of the church, the rapture into heaven, he will then begin the process, and we'll see it in chapter 6 begin, where he starts one by one to open the seals and bring about in his authorization the successive events of the tribulation period as the judgment of God begins to be poured out upon this earth and will ultimately culminate in Jesus then as rightful king returning to the earth, overthrowing all of his enemies, and then rightfully reclaiming everything that he redeemed and belongs to him as he sets back his throne upon the earth. What a beautiful image of seeing our Lord in his fullness as both the lion and the lamb. You can't get a greater contrast, could you? A lion and a lamb, but yet Jesus operates in both as is needed. Jesus is a mighty strong lion who can prevail and conquer, and sometimes that's what we should adore about him. And we should adore about him that he is a mighty lion and a king. And sometimes that's what we need of him. Jesus, I need you to act like a roaring lion in my life right now, like a conquering king. And sometimes we remember that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, and that inspires our worship because that's what we need because we have failed and sinned greatly, and we feel guilty and condemned, and we're so thankful that we can worship him as the sacrificial lamb who takes away our sins. What a wonderful thing to see Jesus in all of his worthiness.